Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am pleased to be joined today by a terrific panel who can discuss much of what has been going on this week. Of course, it's uh, Thursday when we record this, and that means the co-host is Ryan Goodman of Just Security at NYU Law School. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. And we're joined again by our friend from the University of Michigan Law School, former U.S. attorney, Barb McQuaid. Hi, Barb. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. And we are joined for the first time by Norm Eisen, who is um, a, a very accomplished lawyer, served as counsel for the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee during the impeachment process, and who has a new book out called A Case for the American People, the United States versus Donald Trump. Congratulations on the book, Norm. Thank you, David and Ryan and Barb. Wonderful to be with you. Yeah, and you have my condolences. As somebody else who has been writing a book in this general area for the past year, mine comes out in two months, um, the, writing books about cases against Donald Trump are very hard because it changes every day. <laughs> it never, it never so ends. True. Is it being published as a ring binder and then you're just going to add chapters as you go? One of the things in the book is I reveal the 10 article secret draft articles of impeachment that guided us through our impeachment year. Uh, and the article number 10 coined by my co-counsel, uh, the wonderful New York trial lawyer, Barry Burke, was the next high crime. So we had a perpetual uh, uh, article of impeachment. Uh, yeah, well, I, actually, you know, you raised the possibility, you know, perhaps we should have a perpetual uh, set of hearings on impeachment at the rate we are going. We could, we could certainly keep you guys busy uh, on an ongoing basis if people had the appetite for it. Um, let's, let's start with um, the news of, from a couple days ago when, uh, for the first time, I think, since he was Attorney General, Bill Barr appeared before a congressional committee, before the House Judiciary Committee. Um, and uh, rather than, you know, getting into the, the specifics, I'd like to go to each one of you, and I'll, let me start with you, Barb, and then I'll go around to each one of you, and say, what was your reaction? What was your takeaway from, from, from Bill Barr's testimony? I was really struck big picture by how willing he is to lie and how nakedly political he is. Um, in such stark contrast to uh, prior attorneys general, uh, you know, think of it by the way Bob Mueller testified, and you know, just some examples of the way he speaks in such misleading fashion. He talked about his issuing that press release saying that Jeffrey Berman was stepping down as U.S. attorney. Um, and when asked about it, he didn't say, well, that wasn't quite right, or there was miscommunication. It was, well, he was stepping down, he just didn't know it yet. 
you can never get away with that kind of misleading statement in court. Um, he, he also did it with regard to saying that no tear gas was used at Lafayette Square. Well, that's true, but pepper spray was. They're both chemical irritants, and so literally true, but creating a very false impression. And then with regard to the, the political statements, not only just e- echoing President Trump's talking points, but going out of his way to take gratuitous shots. You know, there was some question about, um, did President Trump have a superb response to uh, COVID-19 when the, the CDC stockpile was bare? And he said, oh, that was Obama. Obama did that. Um, and there were a couple points when he did that, went out of his way. Uh, he was asked about, with regard to Roger Stone, does that not exemplify uh, two systems of justice, one for friends of President Trump and one for everyone else? And he said, it was Obama who had two systems of justice. Uh, it was really, as a career DOJ lawyer, um, it was really heartbreaking to see it uh, come to that kind of level of uh, mendacious testimony and, and that level of, of political grandstanding. Um, I see that we are joined also by Harry Littman. Uh, Harry, we're yeah. asking questions at the moment, and I will get to you after I get to Norman Ryan about Bill Barr's and Barb. That's that is the proper, I think, placement for me here. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's well, well, we'll we'll mix it up a little bit, but we right. just heard we've just heard from Barb, and so I'm going to go now to um, Norm. Well, um, Barb is a lifelong uh, prosecutor. I'm, uh, in fact, I'm sandwiched by them because I've got Harry uh, <laughs> on my screen just below me. I'm a lifelong defense lawyer. Yeah. That was my, my training. And so what I saw, uh, as Barb saw through the prism of the betrayal of proud traditions of DOJ, I think what I saw was the very worst abuses that uh, exemplified that um, you see from um, prosecutors at times, never Barber, Harry, never. Uh, And Harry and I have known each other since we were baby lawyers uh, doing this in Washington, D.C. Harry, I think Rod Rosenstein was rattling around in those days uh, in my (laughs) book. We were punks together, yeah. uh, yeah, we all were together. <laughs> in my book, I write a lot about how Barr has come to exemplify the worst tra- traditions, the, the darkest underbelly uh, of um, government uh, power in service of the White House, not in service of justice. And I'll add to some additional examples to Barr's, Barb's very good list. Uh, you know, she ticked off a number uh, of the um, uh, spots on my bar, lie, bingo card. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, he, he doubled down on, on his false uh, uh, position uh, on the Mueller investigation. He did that in his opening statement by mischaracterizing what the Russian invasion was about. Um, I, I'm not the one who's calling him a liar for that. A uh, federal judge in D.C., Reggie Walton, said that the Attorney General had not been candid in those statements. Um, I was very interested on the Portland on the issue of uh, the protests, Lafayette Park, Portland, and the um, secret police, um, which I think is a fair 
label for them. Uh, I was very interested when, the, when he was given the opportunity by Chairman Nadler to correct himself on his Kansas City. What I thought, what I had thought was a misstatement or a stumble on his part, and Barb, it's really further, further to your point about the uh, bad faith. Uh, instead of saying, yes, I made a mistake, Barr said there were 200 people uh, arrested as a result of Trump's new efforts, Operation Legend, and that was false. There was only one uh, who had been arrested. He was mixing apples and oranges, other programs. He said very nastily, he said to the chairman, I don't know. Why wouldn't he take the opportunity to correct the lie? Uh, so um, I thought the tear gas, that was outrageous. Um, uh, DOJ has characterized it as tear gas in the past. A, uh, the park, uh, a uh, National Guard leader was, who was on the scene was testifying at the same time and said he found tear gas canisters uh, and that there, there was evidence tear gas was used. And just on and on. And I write in the book, wherever you have a Trump scandal, and I put in a lot of new information in a case for the American people, unreported evidence, wherever there is a Trump scandal, wherever the current chief can be found, President Trump, the enabler in chief, Bill Barr, is there uh, to make it possible. And we saw more of that in this hearing. Um, yeah. By the way, when one of the things that stuck in my mind is that when he was talking about that uh, National Guard uh, commander said that it was uh, pepper spray, um, uh, Barr said, well, I don't recall him being in any of the leadership meetings or any of the discussion. I mean, it was not just that he was lying. He was also being an asshole about the whole thing. Um, let me go to Ryan and then we'll go to Harry. Um, and by the way, I just want to tell everybody who's listening that Harry's going to drop off around 5.30, so. I'll stick uh, a little later, and I'm so sorry. I thought I, I had my calendar wrong because of Pacific <laughs> time, so I'm really a, a truant on both sides. But I'll, but thank you for the heads up, Dave. Well, I just I just want to make sure that nobody in our audience thinks they've done anything to offend you. <laughs> right. um, uh, Ryan. Yeah, I guess I echo what others had said. Um I thought Amber Phillips at the Washington Post captured it well on her fact check that she was like, her takeaways, the number one takeaway was, quote, he is all in as a partisan player. And I thought that that's correct. Some of the lying was so audacious because people like Glenn Kessler, we've had on the podcast as a fact checker, check, you know, checked him immediately, like within minutes. It didn't take much to just say, he said X about the testing for COVID. It has been provably, you know, provably false. Um, and then other aspects in which he shouldn't have even found himself. Um, the back and forth between him and uh, Representative Jeffries on the president's response to the coronavirus pandemic, uh, going through one by one, was that superb? Was that superb? No, what was that superb? Because Barr had previously characterized President Trump's handling of the coronavirus as quote unquote superb. It just what on earth was he doing in that political space as the defender, the um, booster uh, for the president? And then, you know, within, is it now 48 hours after the hearing, he's injecting uh, federal resources into three cities that all seem to happen to be swing states in the election. Um, it just, you know, plays out in a very political way. And I think that's, for me, the big take-home point. It's a very deep concern about what the next uh, less than 100 days hold because this is the attorney general and 
he has an enormous amount of power as to whether or not there's going to be a free and fair election. Okay. Harry, what was your reaction? Well, you know, I had several, and I don't want to duplicate too much what I'm sure Barb said, but I was really trying to put my finger on it. <clears throat> and and to, to Norn's point about why wouldn't he correct himself on the truth? We saw him flinch a couple times and think hard and then correct himself. The most salient was when he first said it would depend on the circumstances, whether you can interfere or, or solicit or get interference from a foreign government. And he first said depends on the circumstances and then corrected himself. I think his flinching was very illuminating because it was always to be sure, not that he'd cover the truth, but that he had covered Trump's position and where Trump would be. And that was the theme, I think, all the way through. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not sure if Barb would have mentioned this, but, you know, you saw his tableau of the poor marshals hanging on by their fingernails and guarding Fort Sumter as the uh, marauders are around them. And look, I think anybody would say that if that were factual, that's a good case for federal power. But it's very tenuous at best that it is factual. If it if if the you know majority sort of scenario is right, then he's it's it's completely all wet what he's saying. And so I was struck uh, a number of times that the positions he were adv- advancing were preceded by a complete swallowing whole of either tenuous or, or frankly, absent factual or legal, um, uh, you know, bases, or even as with the, um, the, the voting rights piece, just, you know, he, what, what it was based on was just his own intuition or common sense. There's nothing that seemed too thin, even against a wealth of evidence on the other side, for him to form the basis of making policy. And just to Ryan's point going forward, we, he left with, you know, everyone, I think, with great and understandable concern that on the voting rights side of things, he's going to uh, commit the Department of Justice to conduct in service of this complete phony baloney scenario of, of, of you know, fraud, which could have real practical impact. And then most uh, ominously of all, he wouldn't rule out and, you know, seemed perfectly prepared to drop the Durham report in October uh, based on, again, a, a kind of crazy view of DOJ policy of not interfering with an election, which he said is limited to when you're actually talking about the candidates. And that's just, that's just fatuous. You know, you can certainly influence an election uh, by conduct that has to do nominally with other people, but really hits home in the middle of a Biden-Trump battle. Well, let's pick up on that, Barb. Let's, you know, one of the things is galling when I listen to Barb, you know, and he says, well, you know, the, you know, there was no Trump Russia and so forth. It's infuriating because there was, and we've all lived through this. And, and and you know norm you know has made a made a case for it in, in his book and 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 so forth but that's essentially water under the bridge trump's you know whatever trump's done thus far he's probably getting away with and and bar too so we got to look forward and when we do look forward we have to say what is he laying the predicate for and we have seen in the course of the time since he spoke that he made a comment um, uh, that 
you know, at first it was kind of ambiguous about whether a foreign government could intervene, and then he changed his comment on that. He talked about enforcing the law with regard to the elections taking place without making a pledge that he wasn't going to intervene. Uh, the, you know, Harry just made this point. And then, of course, we've seen today the president of the United States saying uh, that maybe the elections should be delayed. We've seen the deployment of more troops, and people associate the deployment of federal forces with the idea of perhaps uh, uh, impeding elections in these democratically controlled cities. Uh, we've, we've seen Pompeo today say, as far as the election uh, you know, getting delayed or not, that Barr would be the person who is the decision maker on that. And then very recently, Ryan told us, just as we were you know, gonna, about to go on the air, that the president has subsequently made another comment about the election um, and, and that he doesn't want to have to wait till after the election. So, you know, if, if, if those mail-in ballots don't come by five o'clock on, you know, election day, maybe they shouldn't be counted. So the, the, the waters are very muddy and it's very clear that the bar is paying a, playing a political position. Where do we go from here? Yeah, I, I think, David, um, one of the things that you point out in your piece in USA Today is that so many of us who are lawyers uh, keep waiting for the law to save us uh, and the courts to save us. And President Trump has shown um, he will break any rule he needs to to win, that he is um, self-interested, not interested in what's in the best interest of the country. And so I, I think it is right to be concerned about all of these things. You can see him laying the groundwork for some of these things. One of the things he said today is that unless uh, all the ballots are counted on election day, uh, we can assume that there is fraud and that, it, the, that the election is rigged. Well, the Secretary of State of the State of Michigan, Jocelyn Benson, has already announced that in Michigan, the ballots will not be counted on the first day. It will take probably three days. It will probably be until the end of the week on that Friday before they're all counted because the law in Michigan says you can't start counting until the polls close at 8 p.m. And so necessarily they will not be done uh, by that time. So knowing that, President Trump is laying the groundwork to say, if they're not counted, you should be on red alert that there's something wrong there. So I, I do worry that he is um, kind of seeding the ground in a number of fronts, um, using those federal agents in Portland and uh it may be that they get run out of there, but what's the next step? Well, he always has the ability under the Insurrection Act to go one level higher, to send in military, National Guard into cities. Um, if, if that happens on or near Election Day uh, in key cities, key urban areas where uh, there are uh, predictable Democratic voters, that could have an impact on the outcome in certain states. And as we saw in 2000, uh, one state can make all the difference. Uh, one close state could really sway the way the election goes. And so I think we do have to keep an eye on all of these things. What can we do about it? I don't know. But I think one is just um, countering his narratives right now. When we see him laying the groundwork, calling it out, as you did in your piece, as all of you do with your voices and your writing, um, so that when he does try to um, hit the punchline, uh, perhaps it's been diffused a little bit because people called it called it out before he had a chance to do it. Norm? 
Uh, I, Barb, um, that's so on point. And I'll just add that part of the reason that I uh, wrote a case for the American people was to extract the lessons, primarily the lessons of the impeachment. First, the Russia phase, following up on the Mueller report, then the Ukraine phase, but really going back to the beginning of Trump's career and uh, tracking what happened after impeachment, what are the Trump moves and how do you counteract them? Because he has a playbook uh, and we've seen him deploy that playbook over and over again. Um, I, I was part of the war games that were done uh, the tabletop scenarios on various electoral outcomes uh, at Georgetown in recent weeks, and um, done, done, done the, under, under uh, the leadership of our our friend Rosa Brooks, who's our co-host on Monday. So yes, Rosa, Rosa, Rosa convened us, and um, uh, and I, I uh, helped lead the cell of uh, Democratic officials in scenario after scenario, and one of the fascinating and. One of the fascinating things is uh, that how predictable Trump is, um, how dangerous it is. He's now surrounded himself by enablers and quasi-enablers. He has not brought, I mean, thank goodness Tom Cotton is not the defense secretary. There's still some semblance of independence at DOD. Uh, Barr is a tremendous danger. That was a big takeaway. But there are, I outline in the book, there is also a toolkit for dealing with Trump. And one of the things you have to do in dealing with him is to move more quickly than he does. That's why it's so, I was so delighted, David. I thought you'd be spending the whole day preparing to question the four of us. I was so, so delighted to see how quickly you got your op-ed up on USA today. You, we've got to be in Trump. That is the foundation of dealing with him. And so now as a nation, we need to ask ourselves, how do we do that to protect our elections? And the book has some answers. Yeah, I, David, can I, can I just yes. raise a, a complicating factor? Um, so I think by and large, it's not the uh, a complete acquittal, but better than any other institution. The courts have held by and large, and we would generally expect as it gets more and more outrageous for them to continue to hold. But, and Norm knows this, you know, better than anybody, he and I have done it in real time, this kind of election <laughs> litigation. Every, it's, it's all casino uh, kind of gambling because the timing can be so hair trigger. You know, I have two words for you, butterfly ballot. There, there, it's, it's clear what happened there, but in an election setting, certain maneuvers can very quickly go beyond the ability of courts or even society to remedy. So when you're playing this kind of Russian roulette with, with Trump and Barr in November, even if you're faster and smarter, and by the way, there are there's a phalanx of extremely talented lawyers as we speak, you know, getting ready to go, and Mark Elias and Bob Bauer, et cetera. But it's not as it would be in normal litigation, a matter of some predictability, but it just takes time. When you're in that election setting, shit can happen that cannot be reversed, and even the nimbler, better litigant can be out of luck. It's a terrifying set of circumstances. Yeah. And as, as, as Norm pointed out, 
Trump has a playbook. He's used mm-hmm. his whole life. And one of the things in his playbook is tie it up in the courts. Yeah. Use the courts to buy time, complicate things. And I think in, in, in his current case, you know, push things to the Supreme Court, push things to courts where he thinks he's got an advantage. Ryan, I'm interested in your views on this, but I also want to sort of turn over to you and, and allow you to ask these three folks any questions that you've Sure. Um, I, some of the scenarios that I worry about as well are the, I'm not sure how predictable it is because he's so willing to do things that are not legal. So you can't even think about what the legal boundaries are. Um, and, you know, securing the vote, I'm not sure why he'd necessarily use the military. He would maybe go back to DHS and uh, Customs and Border Patrol because they're much more faithful to him and they're used to dealing with people who do not have the same set of rights. So two days out before the election, he says we need to secure the election because of voter fraud and the like. So we need to deploy federal forces in these um, democratic strongholds. And, and he's preparing some of that uh, today. I also thought there were some about the tweets today that I thought were right, which is not that Trump is trying to um, actually move the date of the election, but it's what Barb said, which is he's laying the groundwork for being able to say that the election was rigged, that it should not have taken place. See that I was right. We shouldn't have held it um, under the pandemic situation. Um, I mean, I guess the one question is like, what's in Trump's psyche and what's in the psyche of the Republicans around him? Because today, the other thing about today that be good to maybe have people reflect on is the remarkable nature in which within a few hours, Senate Republicans did rally and it's, you know, remarkable I get to say these words against the president on the issue as to whether or not the election could be moved, including uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell. Um, are we entering a period in which there might be more allies than we otherwise thought? Because a lot of those Senate Republicans are vulnerable in their race uh, for re-election. And um, if it's high, higher, the higher the likelihood that Biden will win means that they need to prepare themselves for a different environment. So going down with Trump uh, is not exactly the right calculus. At least they have to think about that alternative scenario in a way in which they haven't over the last three and a half years. They're in a very different um, political environment. Does that maybe change the outlook uh, on some of these questions? So Barb and then Norm and then Harry. Yeah, you know, one of the things about the election is even if President Trump somehow were allowed to move it, um, doesn't his term still expire on January 20th of 2021? I think it does. Definitely. And so um, I don't know that there's really any benefit in truly moving it. So that makes me think, so then why is he talking about moving it? And I think, as Ryan said, a more, more likely motivation is just to the same strategy that Russia uses, which is to sow division and discord and confusion, um, and in in some way perhaps even uh, rig the outcome in his own favor. If there is all kinds of confusion, could that result in suppression of people not going to the be- to the to the, to the polls? If there's confusion about the date, about whether it's going to be canceled, um, does that in some way affect the vote? So. I don't think he wants to stop the election because I think it's the only way he can be reelected. I think he does want to be reelected because he enjoys the power, but I also think that there is some uh, potential criminal exposure and real peril for him 
if he leaves office in January of 2021, um, that he could be charged with a crime. If not federally, well, that's a possibility, um, then by Cyrus Vance. And so in some ways, um, being reelected is his best criminal defense. So I don't think he wants to stop the election, but I do think that he is doing everything he can to create doubt that could result in some sort of suppression of, of voting that could inure to his benefit. Norm? Well, um, I'll add one other uh, wrinkle to it, which is it's only half. We, we've been focusing on half of the president's uh, ploy today. The other half is to have this podcast talk about this instead of the worst economic decline that we've uh, measured uh, in in many decades, uh, the uh, co continuing carnage of COVID that the president is responsible for, with the death of Herman Cain today, symbolizing, I believe, and I argue, I make this case, the American people in the book, that um, uh, he intentionally, just like with Russia, just like with Ukraine, this is an election scenario that he faced where he intentionally chose to do the wrong thing. And this time, tens of thousands of Americans are dying because the president didn't want to deal uh, with COVID. He thought not dealing with it would help his election. So he doesn't want us about that. And there's, he doesn't want us to talk about the John Lewis funeral where the other presidents, the president's club is out in full force. He's not welcome. Uh, there's a lot of other, so that's half of the ploy here. That has to be considered in looking at the scenario. Um, and I think it's complicated uh, how things turn out. I believe the president's end game is to destabilize the so-called the election scholars um, when I'm not wearing my impeachment hat, I'm uh, an election uh, litigator every four years. And the so-called blue wave, the wave of uh, Democratic ballots that do come in, vote by mail uh, or uh, from uh, precincts where, there's, where they're harder to count. So there is this lag where Democratic candidates tend to overtake Republicans the day after election day, sometimes longer. He wants you know, he's destabilizing that. Uh, and then there's a variety of scenarios we looked at when we did our tabletop exercises, including the possibility that the president uh, says the whole thing is so tainted. I guess I do agree with Barb. This is a general chaos strategy. He says, oh, the whole thing is so tainted. When Mike Pence presides over the United States Senate on January 6th, he's not recognizing the ballots, the delegates, uh, the electors, He's not recognizing the electors from Pennsylvania who narrowly delivered this election to Trump, and therefore uh, the the uh, 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 Trump got more electoral votes. You know, he's setting up those kinds of maximum um, uh, uh, illiberal scenarios because, and, and I do agree with Barb on this. He's looking; he's very likely looking at prosecution when he leaves the White House. So he'll do anything to avoid giving up his uh, space of immunity. Harry? Two points. First, uh, as to Trump and the kind of analysis or psychoanalysis of what he's doing, 
it's it's almost beyond the point or that root lies uh, madness. He he can't stand to lose, even though I think somewhere deep within he feels himself um, a, a loser. But we don't have to necessarily um, link up specific conduct with trying to uh, be a, a diversion or whatever. He just, whatever it is to, to win, whatever excuse, whatever lie, whatever maneuver we can count on him to undertake. But, but I want to take Ryan's question literally because I think it raises a really interesting dynamic. He asked, what do Trump and the Republican senators do? And those are two different forces. I think there's some reason to believe that McConnell has told his guys that if um, – uh, Trump stays in the tank, but you know, by around mid-September, they can begin to distance themselves, and so that already may be the case. But my best guess is, even though they were craven and went along at impeachment, if he's really trying this blatant banana republic coup at the end, that that most Republicans will a see the writing on the wall, see that he'll probably lose, and b not want to be tarred with that in history. So I think he'll he'll be able to keep talking, he'll have his base etc but he'll but you'll see significant revolt uh, even among the uh, tried and true Republican caucus. Ryan, we've got 5 minutes. Do you have one more round of brief questions for everybody? Um, I guess the question maybe the the one major question is uh, I think the bomblet that's going to drop, which is the Durham investigation. Yeah. So if folks just, you know, can just leave it out there in that sense. <laughs> um, what do you think it would be good for the audience to hear in terms of trying to anticipate um, Barr um, and his actions and what will come down through the Durham investigation, which might end up in an indict instead of indictments, or might end up in a, in a report from Durham, um, just to kind of sensitize, in a certain sense, uh, the public to that question. Well, I'll, I'll start. I think, number one, uh, Barr absolutely telegraphed that he does not think that the DOJ policy against influencing elections applies in this instance. Um, there was some uh, back and forth with uh, some of the members of Congress about this, and uh, he, he has interpreted the policy to mean solely that you can't charge the candidate himself or a close aide. Um, but I will tell you, when we were at the Department of Justice, we considered any charge that could tend to influence. If it was about an issue, if it was about uh, someone aligned with that person, there are many ways an election can be influenced even without charging the candidate him, himself or herself. So I think And that is one, the plain words of the policy, is influence the election. So I I think we should anticipate an October surprise. I think that we can anticipate seeing that sometime. And I think sensitizing the public to that um, is a good thing to do. I think this could very well be the Hillary's emails of 2020. Um, What might it be? I guess it would be investigating the investigators and giving Trump and his supporters talking points about the Russia hoax, that it was all a scandal, it was a coup, it was an effort to take him down. Um, I don't know that that's all that new within that audience, though. And so I guess the goal would be to try to uh, give the Fox News hosts uh, an opportunity to sway swing voters uh, into the Trump camp as a result of that. Um, I guess the thing to say that the best defense to that is the Mueller report. Although there is no charge of conspiracy and although he left it open as to whether 
obstruction should be charged, uh, he made many good findings about uh, what actually went on. And I think reminding people of those quotations about Russia interfered in our election in sweeping and systematic fashion that the Trump campaign uh, knew about, welcomed, and believed it would benefit from Russian interference uh, is probably the best way to lay the groundwork uh, to build resilience when that bomb drops. Norm? Well, um, you know, the, the, the things, all the things that Trump values about Bill Barr have now come together to undermine the power of uh, the coming Durham report. Um, Barr has no credibility left. There's no, you know, no, no responsible person of either party uh, uh, defended his shameful behavior this week. The pattern of lies is so grotesque. The subservience to the president, so servile. Durham's reputation, you know, Durham was called upon by both Democratic and Republican administrations to do some very tricky uh, investigative and prosecutorial missions. Um, Durham's reputation has taken a body blow by going along with this charade and uh, by, uh, as I write it in the book, uh, criticizing, joining Barr in criticizing the independent IG on the so-called spying, uh, where the DOJ IG said there was no political motivation in starting this, and uh, Durham and Barr objected. So, you know, I think that all of us, all the hard work that everybody has done to tell the truth, uh, we have set a context to understand the Durham October surprise or September or August surprise when it comes. It is going to be ugly. I think that like a body, the body politic, it's antibodies to this corruption are very, very strong now. And I've mentioned revulsion in response. Eric. Two quick points. Look, I agree the antibodies are strong among the sort of political elite in both on both sides of the aisle. But the play here is just to have, as happened with Comey and Clinton, a kind of a three, four day news cycle that just starts to smell as if, you know, for for people who are you know, who, who's at the end here actually undecided to making up their mind. You've seen these you know, groups on TV. It's terrifying. But whether the folks like that, you know, just the sort of effect of its being in the water can can mean a two or three point shift. That's the first point. The second is we're going to really see how far Barr has co-opted and corrupted Durham. And I agree it's taken a body blow because what he'll really be looking for is not simply the relitigation of 2016 and the vindication of Trump, but to somehow twist this story, which involves nothing but Republicans, right? Comey, McCabe, et cetera. Somehow the scenario he wants to use it for is the corruption of the Obama-Biden Justice Department. Uh, and the unmasking, et cetera. So will will Durham actually go along with some scenario that that somehow completely nonsensically tars Joe Biden? 
You know, as we get to the end here, I'm reminded, I remember reading a long time ago in the Wall Street Journal a story about a defense lawyer, some Texas defense lawyer, and he was famous for using you know, every, every possible defense all at once. So if he was accused, a man was accused of, of having a dog that bit somebody, he would say the dog didn't bite the person, um, the man provoked the dog, and it's not my dog. Right, exactly. I don't and, know. <laughs> and, and that, you know, in, in this particular case, I, I think you, you, you are likely to see, based on everything that you've said, that to the nth degree with meddling with this election. Let's have the Russians meddle with the election. Let's have state governors play around with voter suppression like they're doing in Georgia or Tennessee or Wisconsin or in, in, in a bunch of other states. We'll have the Durham report. I wouldn't be surprised if economic numbers came out a little better than they actually were in October uh, and in September to talk about a recovery. And then they can correct those numbers in December. But, you know, this administration is not beyond that. They've suppressed COVID numbers and they will continue to try to suppress COVID numbers. Um, the president will announce deals with foreign leaders that aren't really deals. You know, they, with every single thing they can do. And by the way, Biden, Burisma, all of that other stuff is going to come back in the midst of all of this thing. And so, you know, we, one can do a lot of scenarios, but listening to you guys, what I'm, what I'm preparing myself for is not one thing or two things. I'm preparing myself for a campaign at multiple levels from multiple directions designed to push the thing towards Trump, to meddle with the election outcomes, and to give him a chance to push back on some of those outcomes if he's not um, prepared for it. I think one of the best ways that, as you guys said, that people can prepare for that is to listen to people like you guys. We have Norm in his new book, The United States versus Donald Trump, Case for the American People. You should go get that and read it. Harry had an excellent piece in the LA Times today. And of course, Harry is the creator and the host of Talking Feds, a, a podcast that often has folks like you on it, having great conversations like this. You see Barb a lot on television and she has written a great deal. The same is true with Ryan, with all of you. And, you know, we've all got to get out there. We've all got to get the message out there, but we've got to be prepared for the busiest 100, 110 days, 120 days <laughs> of our lives <laughs> as we go to this election and then in the period immediately after this election because the national debate is going to be so muddied and, and turbulent. Uh, in any event, hopefully you'll come back here to continue this discussion here on, on, on Deep State Radio. We're really grateful you took the time today. Thank you, Barb. Thank you, Norm. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Ryan, as every week. And uh, thank you, everybody, to listening. And by the way, you listen to this, you download this at the regular time. We also have this weekend, um, uh, posting Friday morning, a uh, Agenda 2021 conversation that I had today with uh, former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta. Leon Panetta's had a 50-year career and not only was Secretary of Defense, he was CIA Director, he was White House Chief of Staff, he was Head of OMB, he was Budget Chairman on the Hill. Nobody understands Washington better than Leon Panetta. It was a real eye-opener, a masterclass 
uh, in government from a master. And hopefully you will listen to that as well. Or go back to Monday when we had Mary Trump. Listen to some of these things. Uh, and hopefully everybody will join us again soon. Thank you and, and, and be well, everybody.